You are listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. like to turn there. There are Bibles in front of you if you need one. Again, 2 Kings 7, 1 through 20. It's in the New, uh, I'm sorry, in the Old Testament, actually. Please rise if you're able for the reading of God's Word tonight. But Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow about this time a seah of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Then the captain, on whose hand the king leaned, said to the man of God, If the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? But he said, You shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Now there were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate, and they said to one another, Why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, let us enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we will die also. So now come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. See, they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. But the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots of horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the king of the Hittites and the king of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses, and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was and fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and ate and drank, and they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried off things from it and went and hid them. Then they said to one another, we are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. So they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, we came to the camp of the Syrians and behold, there was no one to be seen or heard there. Nothing but the horses tied and donkeys tied and the tents as they were. Then the gatekeepers called out, and it was told within the king's household. And the king rose in the night and said to his servants, I will tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we are hungry. Therefore, they have gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the open country, thinking, when they come out of the city, we shall take them alive and get into the city. And one of his servants said, Let some men take five of the remaining horses, seeing that those who are left there will fare like the whole multitude of Israel, 
who have already perished. Let us send and see. So they took two horsemen, and the king sent them after the army of the Syrians, saying, Go and see. So they went after them as far as the Jordan, and behold, all the way was littered with garments and equipment that the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. And the messengers returned and told the king. Then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians. So a seah of fine flour was sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. Now the king had appoint, appointed the captain on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate, and the people who trampled him in the gate, so that he died, as the man of God had said when the king came down to him. For when the man of God had said to the king, two seahs of barley shall be sold for a shekel, and a seah of fine flour for a shekel, about this time tomorrow in the gate of Samaria, the captain had answered the man of God, if the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could such a thing be? And he had said, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And so it happened to him, for the people trampled him in the gate, and he died. This is the word of the Lord for his people. So we really are finishing uh, Second Kings tonight. Uh, last week I said the same thing, but I kind of got carried away because uh, I love that passage. I kind of wanted that to be the climax, but it wasn't. So uh, this is a great story too. And uh, it ends uh, with this gigantic eucatastrophe, uh, which is a word that comes from J.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings. And it's a word that comes from catastrophe. Things are absolutely terrible. Uh, it's, it's midnight, uh, and um, it's one of the darkest moments of the Bible where you have this combination of starvation going on because the, uh, the city of Jerusalem has been besieged by the Syrian army. And if you know anything about ancient sieges, uh, it's, the details are gruesome. If you read Josephus and what the Romans did to Jerusalem, this is exactly the same thing. Starvation, uh, infanticide, cannibalism. These things happened uh, regularly when there was siege warfare. And so it's one of the darkest moments in the, in the whole Bible. At, the, at midnight, uh, and that's the catastrophe. But then God takes that catastrophe right when it looks like all is lost, and there's no way to come back from this disaster. All of a sudden, um, it's, it's, all of Israel is saved. The entire, the entire country which was about to be destroyed by the Syrian army, not only are they saved, but there's this massive victory banquet in the field of the enemy. So it's the very food that had fed uh, the army that was dominating them and killing them and starving them. And that food is now their food that they're eating to sustain their life. And not only all that, but uh, God told them beforehand this was going to happen. So at midnight, uh, he told them so they could relish this. Um, there will be joy in the morning. Joy will come in the morning. And that will allow you to uh, pass through the night. And um, all those things that I was praying about, you know, that, that are going on in the world, um, if you watched the last debate, you heard all about it. It seems like things are very hopeless, like they're very lifeless. Uh, and yet we believe as, as Christians, if you're a believer in Christ, we believe that the death of God, uh, the, the crucifixion of God leads to resurrection. And we see that pattern all over the place. So we do not lose hope in our world, even though um, it looks like it's burning up. Uh, we do not lose hope. And, um, and yet, uh, even in the face of the good news, we so often doubt. 
So I want to start with that, the fact that we, we do, in fact, doubt. We do have just an enormous amount of unbelief that is in our heart. It has nothing to do with evidence. Uh, evidence will not solve your problem of unbelief. It just doesn't work that way. Um, because there is tons of evidence in this passage, and the king still won't believe. So that's, our, that's often the response we have to good news, um, is unbelief. And uh, it comes out of bitterness, it comes out of anger, it comes out of um, pride, disappointment. Uh, that's, that's the first point. We see that with the king, we see that with this, uh, the, the kind of the right-hand man to the king, the captain. Uh, we see the unbelief there. But then we also see that in response to our unbelief, God is still faithful. So we're faithless, but where we're faithless, he remains faithful. And in spite of the king, uh, he still brings all the food, and the king gets to eat of that food. He still brings the banquet. The economy goes from the Great Depression to the Roaring Twenties, like overnight, and the king gets to participate in that. So I want to look at both of those things, the faithlessness, our faithlessness when we hear the good news, and then the faithfulness of God to bring what he promised anyway in the teeth of our unbelief. So first of all, um, just to give a little bit of background, if you remember in the last story, the king of Syria, uh, once he saw how much uh, God loved his country and his army, he stopped fighting. So that king, um, in the story of chapter 6, uh, has no longer invaded Israel. Uh, so he... He became a pacifist or whatever. You know, he, he cha- his heart was changed. But the new king in chapter, uh, this chapter 7, um, in, he does invade Israel from Syria. Syria is like the northern menace. They're the northern neighbor. It was always threatening to come down. Like the, um, in the Roman Empire, like the barbarians, the Goths and the Visigoths. They were always threatening to come down. And, uh, and so now the Syrian army has come down again. And they've all, they always want to uh, attack Jerusalem or Samaria in this case. Uh, Samaria was the capital of Israel, just as Jerusalem was the capital of Judea. So they, the, the Syrian army comes down, and they, uh, they have sieged the city of Samaria, which was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. And uh, in chapter 6, verse 25, it says a donkey's head cost whatever that amount is. Let's just say $80, something like that. So you think about that, they're eating, they're eating that kind of thing. That's, that, in the marketplace, that's how much a donkey's head would cost. And then a cup of dove's dung would cost about $5. So imagine like a loaf of bread. That would have probably been like $500. That's how bad, that's how bad the economy is. The, the inflation is that bad. We think our inflation's bad. Uh, I can't even read verse 29. I won't do that. It's just so gruesome. But it shows you the level of despair. And in verse 30, the king tore his clothes in despair. He had given up all hope. Uh, he, he, he imagined that Israel would just be destroyed. But instead of begging for mercy, which any king would do, this is King Jehoram, uh, Jehoram actually, instead of begging for mercy, he's so angry at God that he wants to cut off the head of God's prophet. He's so mad at God for doing this that instead of begging for God's mercy, uh, he just spews out hatred and violence against God through the prophet of God, uh, which is Elisha. That's what he, he, he says, cut off his head. That's his response to what's going on. And then right then, at that moment, uh, in verse 1 of this chapter, uh, Elisha says to the king and everyone in the king's court, hear the word of the Lord. And you would think at that point that it would be a word of judgment. Certainly you would think that it would be a word of condemnation, that the city is going to be destroyed because you're trying to cut off my head and I stand in the place of God. 
But no, it says, tomorrow morning, there will be so much food, you can buy a loaf of bread for a nickel. It's this promise of incredible abundance in life, which would have seemed completely absurd. But God loves to do that. He loves to just shock us in places of darkest times with the brightest light. Uh, that's just the way he works. He loves to do that. He did that for me in um, perhaps the bleakest season of my life when uh, one of our children was suffering enormously and <clears throat> for a long time, prolonged. And I've mentioned this before, I've alluded to this before, but God visited me um, in a very powerful way of, with like actual feelings in my body, like emotions, like chemicals, uh, you know, running through my, my veins and uh, there were dreams of abundant life and joy and reconciliation uh, with our child. But so often, um, I would have an experience like that, but the unbelief would just set in. The inertia uh, of doubt would just push back on all of that confidence. And, you know, God still does these things. He still gives us, I'm sure this has happened to you too, in, in moments of great doubt and darkness. Uh, you'll have a moment, like an insight, or God will give you something, and then it'll just slowly uh, kind of fade away. And, and I would move back to bitterness and back to doubt. Even when there was evidence at times that, that things were going better, I would still uh, turn back. And it doesn't help when somebody is standing next to you giving you a counsel of despair, which is what this captain is doing. And I, my mind always goes to Lord of the Rings, so I thought about Wormtongue, who is there right beside King Theoden's ear, like whispering all this despair in his ear. And that's what this... This captain, what he says might not seem so bad in verse 2, but obviously it is bad because he's trampled for saying this. So what he's doing here is he is, um, he is whispering in this king's ear. Every time the king has some hope, uh, this guy is whispering a counsel of darkness and hopelessness and lifelessness. So um, he says in verse 2, even if the Lord himself, which is kind of derogatory, even if the Lord himself opens heaven's windows, this will never happen. And what he is doing there is he is uh, using a phrase that God loves. Uh, one of God's phrases that he loves about himself is he's like, I am the God who opens heaven's windows. So imagine like Bill Maher quoting that uh, with a smirk, and that's what you have in this worm tongue. Malachi 3.10 actually says, I will open heaven's windows and pour out such blessings on you that you will not be able to take it in. That's what God says. Open heaven's windows. He uses that several times in the Old Testament. And this guard, knowing that phrase, is mocking God. Like, yeah, sure, the Lord himself is going to open heaven's windows. He's saying there's, this is, there's no way that, that that kind of abundance of life could ever come in the morning. And I just wonder uh, how many people have, have laughed at God's grace because of us. You know, because in times, even if you're a believer, I know most of us are, but in times of dark doubt, uh, despair, oftentimes we will be cynical or sarcastic about somebody telling us good news. And you notice the judgment is very severe. God says uh, to this worm tongue, tomorrow you'll believe it, uh, but you won't eat of it because you'll be dead. So obviously this is, a, this is a serious thing to cause people doubt. Jesus talks about that. If you cause a little one to stop believing in my goodness and grace, that's a very serious thing. Better to have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the ocean. Because this, uh, this worm tongue has poisoned the king's mind so much that he won't even listen to hard evidence because his suspicion has been so uh, deepened by his counsel. So when the king heard what Elisha said, 
He should have believed then, because Elisha has said a lot of things that came true. So that, that he should have believed in to begin with. But then he hears later that night, the lepers come back, and they give their report, and his reaction is not to praise the Lord. You would think he would say, praise the Lord, this is exactly what God promised, and now these lepers have come back and corroborated the story. But instead, he goes right to suspicion. And he's like, I know what they're doing, in verse 12. The Syrians are setting a trap to lure us out and kill us. That's how, um, that's how much suspicion is there, and unbelief, and uh, just crassness of thinking. Uh, his, his servants come to him in verse 13 and say, well, maybe, could we just go check it out? Because like everybody's dying, and there are almost no horses left. So the majority of Israel has perished, verse 13. Maybe we could just go out there and check it out. And as far as we know, um, Jehoram's heart is so bitter against God and the gospel and good news that in verse 17, he appointed Wormtongue to go down to that gate and guard it. And my reading of that is that he didn't want anyone to go out there and see because he was so opposed to it. He, he didn't even want them to have a chance to go out there and see. And we see that later because when the guard uh, is trampled, there, he's obviously trying to stop something from happening or he wouldn't have been trampled. So uh, again, I just wonder um, if somebody's told you a promise of God, spoken some blessing into your life, have you ever reacted to that with deep cynicism? You actually got angry. Like, don't tell me that. I don't want to hear that. Where somebody promised protection and abundant life, and, and you got, um, you, you were mean to them. You said something uh, snarky or snide, cruel to them. This is, uh, this is very much a first world problem. It is not even close to comparison with what happened in Samaria back then, but it's very recent, and I think you probably can relate to it because it's dealing with finances, which right now for a lot of people are tight. It's the greatest cause of stress in Americans. So a couple of weeks ago, a little over a week ago, one of our children's car uh, stopped working. It cost $1,300, and they're in that age where you don't know if you should pay for those things or not, but we did, so that's a lot of money, $1,300. And then, then last week, uh, $500 car repair on my car for things I didn't take it in there to get repaired. They found new things, and then they said there's maybe upcoming things, and then a child's computer breaks down, that's $700. And then I found out at the mechanic when I went back and said, you didn't fix the problem, that that would cost $800, and they would only give a 10% discount because I didn't find it. Uh, and you know, again, these are, these are not serious problems we have, but, but they are such problems that when I started to text my wife immediately, frantically, when I found that out about the car repairs this coming Friday, which they already predicted. And uh, we were trying to comfort each other, like God is watching over us. But I just remember, even as I was texting, I was scoffing and saying, it sure doesn't look like that. And uh, I just, uh, I, I was not able to fight off that unbelief. And still I'm struggling. I mean, you know, when, when, it, when it comes to money or food, it's, that's really real. And uh, that's where really the trust has to kick in. And even if we're faithless, as I was, and uh, in a, to a much greater extent King Jehoram was, God still brought about the promise. He doesn't, he doesn't protect you any less because of your faithlessness. Because of your unbelief, because of your doubt, he doesn't say, well, then I'm not going to give it to him. It's not the way God works. His response to our unbelief is faithfulness. 
And verse 3, I love the way that God brought about this miracle. It's, it's so like God um, to come to these lepers who are not either in the city or out of the city. They're at the gate of the city. So they're not with the Syrians, and the Israelites don't want them because they're outside the gate, because they're lepers, because they're contagious. And it says in verse 3, there were four men at the entrance of the gate, and they said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? The contrast between the king, who's kind of high up on his throne, and uh, who really has no interest in taking any action because he feels good about his own chances, even though the majority of Israelites are dying. The contrast between the king and these helpless outsiders who have nothing to lose is like stark, and, and, the, and it's very intentional. They say in verse 4, if we enter the city, we'll die of famine. If we sit here, we'll also die. And if we go to the camp of the Syrians, we might die, but who knows? And so desperation has stripped away their fear of death so much that they actually say in verse 4, if they kill us, we shall only die. If they kill us, then what's the worst that could happen to us? We're dead. And so they, based on that logic, they go out to the Syrian camp. And they, they, I can imagine them, this is probably really, really late at night, you know, 3 a.m., maybe intentionally because they're, they're trying to probably find food in the camp without actually encountering a, a Syrian. But they're, they're, maybe there's mist or something, but they're, they're, they're walking out slowly into the fields where the Syrian army is camped. And I imagine their eyes are darting around, you know, looking around for anyone who might attack them. Um, but there's no sound at all. It's complete silence. And so they just keep walking and walking. And pretty soon they come, and the first silhouette they see is not a human. It's a horse. And then a donkey. And they see the tents, but there's no human beings anywhere. Uh, there are only these tables that are full of maybe goblets of wine or pita bread or kebabs or pastries. You know, it's, it, the, the Syrians were eating probably when this happened. So there's all this food set up, like a banquet out in the enemy's camp. And it says in verse 6, and these lepers had no idea about this. Um, nobody except for the Syrians would have known this. I don't even know how it got back to the author of the story. Perhaps Elijah knew it. But it says in verse 6 that God had made the Syrian army hear the horses and chariots of the two largest armies in the world. And so they fled. Now, there was no actual sound, I think, or the lepers would have heard that. And if you had had a video watching this, you would have just seen this army just take off for no apparent reason at all, just out of sheer fear. But it says in verse 15, when the, um, the people were sent out by the king to check it out, to verify whether this really happened or not, the whole road to the Jordan was littered with garments and equipment thrown away in haste. Kind of like how marathon runners, when they start their race, start throwing things off. The army is so terrified that they are willing to just throw away swords and shields and armor to lighten the load so they can get out of there that fast. They're that terrified. And they're terrified of nothing. Nothing happened. There wasn't even really a sound. It was just in their eardrums. But God does this miracle in order to make this table this banquet in this enemy camp for these four lepers. And I, I imagine verse 8, the lepers going into the tents and seeing that there's no one there and just starting to eat, you know, the grapes or the figs and then beginning to drink the wine. And I can imagine them like dancing on their crutches and singing songs and riding around on the donkeys. And I love how God loves to bring good news to people who are ignored. He does that with the shepherds in the field. 
in Bethlehem, the women at the tomb where Jesus rose from the grave. The gospel comes to those who are ignored, like these lepers. And I can imagine at first they're thinking, you know, screw Samaria. They have ignored us our entire lives. They've rejected us. They wouldn't even listen to the city. And then pretty soon um, they, stint, they start rethinking that. You know, they've hid all their stuff in caves. They're, they're taking all the gold and the treasure and they're putting them in caves so that when uh, the, the Israelites do come out, they'll be like, I don't know where this stuff went. But then they begin to realize in verse 9, but if we're silent, we're going to be punished. They're going to find out. If we don't say anything, they're going to ask, why did you not say anything? So at first, their motives are very, very mixed. I wouldn't call this faith exactly. But there's a fear of punishment that might be the beginning of wisdom where a person actually says, maybe this is not the right thing to do, even out of self-interest. Like, maybe I should act here. But then they think in verse 9, and their moral reasoning keeps improving. And I love this line, we are not doing what is right because this is a day of gospel. This is a day of euangelion is the Greek word in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. This is the day of the euangelion. This is good news. This is the day that God has done this miracle that he promised us. And so instead of hoarding and indulging themselves, the good news makes them generous to their enemies. They go and uh, to the city and they they knock on the, the gate and they call the guard and they say, there's all this stuff out there in that field if you'll just come out and eat it. Come, let us go and tell the king's household, verse 9. And in spite of the king's attempt to stop the feasting, in verse 16 it says, the people went out and they plundered the camp of the Syrians. I mean, imagine the starving people inside eating donkey's heads, eating the dung of doves. And now they hear this report that there's a banquet out in the field and it's like Peter and John rushing to the empty tomb. This is good news. It's life. It's life or death. And, and the good news, we believe, is that, that much life or death. It's that real. Imagine, like, if Trader Joe's opened their doors and just said, take whatever you want. I mean, there would just be cars. Throughways already packed, but that would be completely littered with cars. People would be running inside. Um, this is even better. I remember when I went to the grand opening of Brick's Pizza, and they just would give you whatever you wanted. They invited certain people to come, and they, you could eat as much as you want, and drink as much as you want, and have dessert, and anything you wanted at all. And I got sick and uh, ate so much that uh, I felt terrible afterwards. But imagine, it's not Trader Joe's, it's a, it's a restaurant that has prepared the food, and it's out there for you, and it's free, and you're starving. And it creates a frenzy. The people trample worm tongue at the gate in verse 17. It's like in, uh, a few years ago in, Wal in Walmart, uh, in America somewhere, there was actually a person that worked there that was trampled on Black Friday because people tried to get in to get cheap things so much. But this is real. These are life and death stakes. This is not about getting a toy for cheap. Salvation comes through food, through a meal, through a table, through tables that are already set, a banquet in the presence of our enemies. You prepare us a table before me in the presence of my enemies. That's what David says. And all the fuel at this table that was used to kill the Son of God, right? This is all the, the broken body and the shed blood were all of the energy that Satan was using to kill the Son of God. Um, all of that is going to become now our nourishment, the nourishment for the people of God. This is the banquet that is set up in the field of the enemy, where Satan's instrument of death 
his greatest instrument of death that anyone ever invented. The, the crucifixion was invented by the Persians as the most terrible form of torture imaginable in death. And then the Romans perfected it. They did them one better. So this is the thing that the evil one devised as the, the most horrible thing ever invented, and they did it to the Son of God, and yet that instrument of death feeds us this afternoon. Um, and it, it feeds us even if we come up here with mixed motives. You know, you could come up here primarily just trying to avoid punishment. There are people who come to church just because of the fear of hell and uh, the fear of damnation, and, and uh, they don't really even have a whole lot of love for God in their hearts, and God takes them. It's still the same food. It's still the same drink. It still nourishes us. These lepers had a lot of mixed motives. There's a lot of unbelief. I've got a lot of unbelief. A lot of times I come to this table full of doubt, uh, scoffing even in my head at times. But Paul says in Romans 3.3, will our lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? By no means. And then he says in 2 Timothy 2.13, though we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. And he did not deny himself at this table. He, he remained faithful to his creation. And so on the night that he was betrayed, conquered his great enemy um, on the night that we were at our worst uh, God came and he gave us his best and he said this is um, my blood Jesus said shed for you even in your unbelief and your doubt this is to cure our unbelief and our doubt and he says this is my body broken for you the very time that uh, we betrayed him, the very time that um, we ran away, Peter just ran away and denied him three times, it was at that moment that he said, I love you the most. And that's really when you find out whether you believe in the love of God. When, it's when you've done the worst thing you've ever done and you still believe at that moment. You're just as loved as ever, because that's true. And that's when you really know the gospel, at that moment. And that's this moment right here. And if you... Uh, if you did really terrible things this week, and maybe last night, maybe this weekend, and you're really ashamed, all the more reason to come and partake. Um, there's only one qualification for coming to this table, and that is uh, like empty hands and need and desperation, like those lepers, like the people of Samaria. We need God's grace. That's the only qualification. So don't let anything else hinder you from coming up here. Uh, but, but if you're not ready, uh, if you don't believe you need God's grace, then... Um, don't come and partake. That would not be wise. That, we don't want to lure you into hypocrisy of any kind. So let me pray for us as we come. Father, I pray that um, there would be a sense in which we're running up here, um, even if we're walking with our hands out. Um, I pray there would be that hunger for your word, for the gospel. Um, blessed are the feet of the, those who bring good news. I thank you for this story, Lord. Uh, only you could have ever thought this up to do this. Thank you for coming to these lepers, the outcasts. Thank you that you were crucified outside the city gate to identify with them, that you were taken outside of the city and uh, were thrown into a, um, into a pit. Um, and I, I praise you that you take the place of the, of the neglected, the ignored, 
the overlooked, that you, you stood in, in our place. And I pray that as we take this meal, it would change the way we think about reality, that it would uh, reprogram our, our basic uh, processing of what is really going on around us. Uh, change, change that deep within us, Lord. Reconfigure things tonight inside of us and our souls. Remember, we love these rascals.